Oh, goody. Anti-racism teaching has come to the Midwest. Lucky us. Hi, you're listening to Write From Karen. My name's Karen. This podcast is about a little bit of everything. My life, my writing, book reviews, politics, and religion. Grab a cup of coffee and get comfortable. I have a lot to say about nothing. This story came to my attention when I was listening to our local conservative news radio talk show host. I listen to him every morning as I'm getting ready for work. And I was stunned to hear that this is actually happening right now at one of the schools that our children actually attended way back when. And I just I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I just think it's terribly dangerous. And I can't believe this is the road that we're going down. I don't know why I'm surprised I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be surprised by any of the craziness that's happening right now. But let me just read it a little bit of this article to you. It's called anti racism comes to the heartland. This was on cityjournal.org. A middle school in our town recently held a diversity training program that forced teachers to locate themselves on an oppression matrix and watch a video of George Floyd's last words. The trainers forced the teachers to watch a nine-minute video of George Floyd's last words. The film is silent, showing only white text on a black screen, illustrating Floyd's final utterances and including his cries for his mother. Such videos are a common technique in many diversity training programs and cult indoctrinations. The intention is to overload the senses of the participants and create an emotional anchor that serves to justify subsequent political arguments, even if they're non sequiturs. Next, Sullivan announced the agenda. We're going to look at three large concepts, and those concepts are oppression, white supremacy, and systemic racism. He and Williamson provided the teachers a handout to locate themselves on an oppression matrix, which defines white heterosexual males as the privileged social group and women, minorities, transgender and LGBTQ people as oppressed social groups. Presumably, these at the top of the oppression matrix, including many of the teachers in the room, are responsible for the racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism and classism against disfavored groups. The diversity trainers then narrowed the focus to race, distributing another handout that outlines the concepts of overt white supremacy and covert white supremacy. The document claims that lynching, hate crimes, KKK, neo-Nazis, and burning crosses are socially unacceptable forms of white supremacy, while education funding from property tax, color blindness, blindness, calling the police on black people, BIPOC as Halloween costumes, not believing experiences of BIPOC, tone policing, and white silence are socially acceptable forms of white supremacy. This is a dangerous conflation. The trainers are attempting to extend the the stigma of true social evils, slavery, lynching, Nazism, to any deviation from progressive political preferences from property taxes to criminal justice to Halloween costumes. According to one teacher who attended the training, the handout originally listed 
MAGA, or Make, a Great, Make America Great Again, as a form of covert white supremacy, but it was removed after public outcry. The principle, however, has remained. Diversity trainers use the emotional overload of historical evils to justify the imposition of current dogma. So if we can have a public outcry to remove MAGA from this insane list, then why can't we have a public outcry to remove this indoctrination completely? This is evil, and I cannot, I cannot believe People are sitting around allowing this to happen. Where are the parents on this? Why aren't the parents speaking up and saying, excuse me, you're not going to teach my child this crap. You're not going to brainwash my child to grow up thinking and believing that just because they're white, they're an evil person. That is sick. Absolutely sickens me. Even more cynically, diversity trainers such as those at the school have begun to insist on a standard of affirmative consent. This means that teachers must not only accept the tenets of the training, in some cases even condemning themselves as white supremacists or oppressors, but also actively vocalize that acceptance. When one teacher said that he was afraid to say anything, Sullivan quickly shut him down, telling the teacher that he must think what an underrepresented or under-resourced student, might say, of our fear of speaking up. Remember, under the new ethics, disagreement is verbatim. Silence is transformed into an omission of guilt. White silence is a form of white supremacy. Finally, after more than an hour of training, one white teacher who was raised by a black stepfather began pushing back, asking, Isn't the district saying that we should be Marxist? He continued, While I don't think there's a person in the room who doesn't disagree that this is an important topic that should be dealt with, the way that it's being framed comes from Herbert Marcuse, who took and stripped all of the economic policies of Marxist theory and turned it into cultural Marxism. I grew up the son of a black man. He raised me to believe in Dr. King's teachings. Dr. King did not teach the kind of vitriol that we see out of Marxism which has a long replete history of countries being bigoted and prejudiced against others and then murdering millions as a result. The diversity trainers, both white, were stunned. At first, Sullivan acknowledged the Marxist orientation of the diversity training program. I know that that's the roots. I'm aware of all that information, he said. Then perhaps realizing that teaching Frankfurt School Marxism in a Missouri public school can be controversial, he distanced himself. The goal here is to take a stand against racism. It's not to be totalitarian. There's not some big political agenda. It's certainly not Marxism. It's just, let's make sure that all of our kids are truly valued and celebrated. Not Marxism. Bullcrap. This is the tell. Many diversity training programs and the political movement known as Black Lives Matter operate on the principle of bait and switch. Following Marcuse, they predict, they predicate their rhetoric on the emotional anchor of racial suffering, then use euphemisms to make their political arguments. In the Missouri training program, the school district proposes empowerment as a solution, which sounds appealing. However, in the documentation, the district defines empowerment as training students to 
refuse to accept the dominant ideology and their subordinate status and take actions to redistribute social power more equitably. The district defines a euphemism as with more euphemisms, but the deeper meaning is clear that American society is white supremacist and must be replaced with a regime regime of race-based redistribution. For years, Americans have watched as educators have pushed deeply diversive, div- divisive anti-racism programs in coastal cities such as Berkeley, Portland, and Seattle. Now, anti-racism has come to the heartland. I guess the bigger question at this point is, will it stay? Do we have the balls to stand up and say, excuse me, no, this is not going to happen. You're crazy. I am not sending my children to a school that teaches this crap. I am not sending my child to a school where their agenda is to brainwash my child. I tell you, if my kids were still going to this school, we would be making some serious changes. I would probably end up homeschooling. Would I want to? No. Would I necessarily think that was the best option? No. But it's definitely better than the alternative, which is to leave them in school and allow these crazies to brainwash my child into thinking that he is a bad person because he's white. It absolutely amazes me that this rhetoric is being allowed right now. It's, it's scary. It, that is scary stuff that they're indoctrinating our children to think a certain way. How is that going to affect the country that we know when they become adults? How is that going to shape our country? Is it going to make it better? Is it going to make it more divisive or divisive? Pretty sure it'll be more divisive. And that's the last thing we need right now is more division. This country is so divided already. Again, I just can't believe that all the years that I've been alive, that this is what the country is coming to right now. I can't believe that people are just sitting by and allowing this to happen. I can't believe that there are no teachers that are standing up to say, excuse me, no. I mean, we had that one teacher stand up, but then she was shot down. Are teachers just going to allow this kind of crap? I mean, whatever happened to just basic subjects? Whatever happened to preparing our children to be productive and successful adults? Basic subjects, reading, writing, arithmetic, history, learning how to debate, how to balance a checkbook. Whatever happened to those fundamental values and messages and teachings? Why do we have to teach kids about LGBT and cross-dressing and transgender? Why do we have to teach them about this crap? They're children. Give them the basic fundamentals to, to live their life. And then they can learn about the rest of this crap later and come to their own conclusions. But they're children. They're going to naturally trust the teacher that's teaching them. They're going to naturally assume that the teacher that's teaching them these things knows what he or she is talking about and believes it. I mean, you know how it is as a child. Mom and dad don't know squat. 
So children don't really listen to their mom and dad, not when it comes to other things like this, but when compared to a teacher, kids are going to believe these teachers and they're going to grow up thinking this is normal. And they're going to grow up thinking that they are either part of a special class or that they are subpar because they simply because of the color of their skin, simply because something they didn't have any control over whatsoever. You know, when I was growing up, we were taught that there was no color. We weren't colorblind. We just didn't think about it. We were all human beings that deserved respect, regardless of what we looked like. Whatever happened to that message? Why are we going down this road? It's evil. It's pure evil. Can we teach our children to respect one another as human beings, regardless of our past, our history, our mistakes, our successes? I'm encouraged to see that this story actually made it on the Daily Caller. So it's getting some national coverage. And I hope that there's enough outcry that our city drops this asinine indoctrination brainwashing program. And I pray that people in my area have courage to stand up and say, no, we're not teaching this to the children. And I think if enough people stand up, I mean, they can't fire everyone. They all stand up and unite and say, no, there would probably be some changes. But that's just, that's the thing nowadays is people are too scared to stand up and do what's right. Yeah, it's scary. It's scary for me to even be talking about this stuff right now. I mean, I could easily be shut down. But it's, if we don't talk about it, if we don't analyze it, if we don't see it for what it is, then we're in for some really tough times. And I don't know about you, but the next four years are going to be tough enough without this extra divisive crap that's being shoveled down our throats with little to no resistance. So it's encouraging to see that it's getting some national coverage. Who knows what'll come of it? Did you guys watch the inauguration? I did not. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I just, I, it's too soon. (laughs) I can't, I'm having a hard time accepting the reality of a, a all democratic controlled government. And so I just couldn't bring myself to do it though. I did see Lady Gaga was there, JLo, Garth Brooks, and apparently JLo at some point started singing in Spanish. Um, which I don't know, Kevin kind of had a hard time with that, but I don't necessarily have a hard time with that. But he was criticizing Lady Gaga's gown. Which I thought was funny, because in comparison to what she normally wears, it was pretty, pretty tame. Um, whoops, I got that's music playing in the background there. Um, anyway, and then she had I just noticed that she had the Hunger Games um, insignia on her, <laughs> on her top. 
Wow. The Mockingjay pin Katniss Everdeen wears in the book film franchise. Which, I mean, whatever. To each his own. But it just, it kind of, I don't know. They're celebrities. I don't understand why people give them such credence. And I don't know. Who cares? They're celebrities. What do they know? Just, you're a singer, so sing. Anyway, whatever. Uh, So no, I did not watch the inauguration. But I did find it pretty ironic that shortly after Biden signed all of those executive orders, one being he was making a mask mandate for anyone in a federal building or federal transportation to wear a mask. And then hours after signing that, he shows up at the Lincoln Memorial, I don't know, doing something, and he's not wearing a mask, and he gets a lot of criticism for that. And when the secretary, the, the, the White House press secretary was interviewed or asked that question, she said, hey, he was celebrating. <laughs> I guess if you're celebrating, COVID doesn't, it can't, it can't come to you if you're celebrating. Even though I get that there weren't, there wasn't anybody around, he was pretty much isolated uh, when that occurred. Still, you can't, you can't sign an executive order forcing people to wear a mask on federal property and then you turn around and not do it, regardless of the circumstances. That's do as I do as I say, not what I do. Pretty typical elitist attitude. Speaking of those executive orders, he signed quite a few things. He basically reversed all the good that President Trump did over the past four years, which he said he was going to do. I'm disappointed that he actually did it, and I'm worried for the next four years. Some of the executive orders that he signed and reversed was the economy, restores collective bargaining power and worker protections for federal workers and lays the foundation for $15 minimum wage, which will put a lot of small businesses out of business. But I believe that's the goal because if the small businesses are out, then who's left? The big companies, which is ironic because I thought that the Democrats were against big, big conglomerates, big companies, but Apparently not. The coronavirus stops the United States withdrawal from the World Health Organization and with Dr. Anthony Fauci becoming the head of the delegation to the who to the WHO. Because the WHO is is clearly has America uh, is interested heart for sure. I'm sure they they just do all kinds of good stuff for America. They don't, by the way, I'm being sarcastic. Environment rejoins the Paris Climate Accord, a process that will take 30 days. Environment cancels the Keystone XL pipeline and directs agencies to review and reverse more than 100 Trump actions on the environment. That just makes complete sense, doesn't it? In a time where a lot of people have lost their jobs, there are no jobs to be had because businesses have shut down. Biden goes and reverses the Keystone XL pipeline, which not only allows America to be energy independent, which is a good thing, but it also gets rid of about 10,000 jobs. So that's just, that's just wonderful. 
go ahead and do that right now at, the, at a time when people are hurting. That makes complete sense. Equity rescinds, resent, rescinds the Trump administration's 1776 commission, directs agencies to review their actions to ensure racial equality or equity. Census requires non-citizens to be included in the census and appropriation of, a con- of congressional representatives. I cannot talk today. Immigration reverses the Trump administration's restrictions on U.S. entry for passport holders from seven Muslim-majority countries. Another immigration undoes undoes Trump's expansion of immigration enforcement within the United States. Immigration, again, halts construction of the border wall by terminating the national emergency declaration used to fund it. And regulation directs OMB director to develop recommendations to modernize regulatory review and undoes Trump's regulatory approval process. So illegal immigrants are going to be allowed to flood into the country because they're automatic votes for the Democrats. Um, They're going to deplete our resources. They are going to take the jobs that Americans sorely need. So yeah, all great decisions to help Americans. I think Biden's mantra should be America last, because he certainly doesn't put America first. And he doesn't care about taking care of Americans. All he cares about is paying back special interest, appeasing China, and bringing in illegals, not because of any compassionate reason, but because they can be potential voters. Yeah. Good stuff, Biden. Good stuff. Definitely have America's interest at heart. Something else on the inauguration. Did you see the story where our troops, after the inauguration ceremony was over, had to sleep in the basement of a garage, car garage, um, garage park, whatever. Uh, They had to sleep on the ground with like one outlet and two bathrooms for hundreds of troops, basically treating them like dogs. How respectful is that? What a middle finger to our military. And then I saw another article where President Trump opened up his DC hotel and was welcoming the troops and the police officers in to rest in comfort. He opened his doors. He's a very generous man, and he definitely has our military interest at heart because he cares about America. If that's not a juxtaposition between the two men and their ideologies, then I don't know what is. Chelsea Handler goes topless to celebrate Joe Biden officially becoming president. First of all, that's not shocking news at all. Secondly, I just find it sad that she is so desperate for attention that she has to bare her breast in order to get any attention at all. There's something fundamentally wrong with people that have to show their appreciation by doing something so crass. Because is it really about what they're celebrating or is it just a pathetic cry for attention? I think you know the answer. The new White House press secretary is being asked a lot of hardball questions 
Did you hear about the question where they ask her, hey, will President Biden keep Air Force One the same color? They legitimately asked her that question. (laughs) Wow. And the admiration and worship stage begins. The media are beside themselves with excitement and chills are running down their legs again because Biden is president now. And did you see how the wind majestically flew through Kamala Harris's hair? Oh, it was breathtaking. I don't know how anybody could just oh, not be excited by that. In COVID news, did you hear? The numbers are going down. It's a miracle. CNN COVID death counter begins counting backward. In what can only be described as a huge win for the Biden administration's COVID plan, CNN revealed this week that the total number of COVID deaths is actually going down. This is a... Really quite something, said CNN anchor John King, as the infamous COVID death counter rapidly ticked downward behind him. Only a few days into the Biden presidency and total deaths are already decreasing. We're not sure if it's Biden's brilliant mask mandate or his flawless vaccine vaccine delivery execution, but people across the country seem to be rising from their graves at a rapid pace, over 200,000 just yesterday. CNN executives are currently considering announcing the end of the COVID crisis in America. At this point, I think we have better things to talk about, says CNN President Jeff Zucker. Now that empathy and competence have returned to the White House, there's nothing really to report here anymore. CNN has announced they will be pulling their COVID field reporters to cover the Biden family dogs and Jill Biden's exquisite wardrobe. <laughs> That was a tongue-in-cheek article from the Babylon Bee, but they're right, though. I mean, numbers have come down. Cities that have been locked down for months are now telling their restaurants, hey, you can go ahead and open up now. You can have people come into your restaurants and eat because Biden's in office and things are going to be so much better now. And we say it's okay. And we, you know, we all have to do what we say. So we now give you permission to go about your business. It's just sickening what is happening to this country. It is so hypocritical. I just don't, I don't understand how people don't see that. I just don't see how they see that. Okay, let Let's move on to something else. Let's get away from politics for a little while. I'm tired of being sarcastic, and I'm sure you're tired of listening to me be sarcastic. Um, The book I read this week was called Trust No One, which is fitting for the political environment right now. (laughs) But it's called Trust No One by Deborah Webb. It's a Devlin and Falco um, first story, the first story in their story. And I'm looking forward to reading more. Of about Devlin and Falco in the future. Let me read you the blurb. A double homicide and a missing woman lead a detective to unearth disturbing secrets in this gripping thriller from USA Today bestseller author Deborah Webb. 
It's the worst possible time for Detective Carrie Devlin to be involved in an all-consuming double homicide case. She's locked in a bitter bitter struggle with her ex-husband and teenage daughter, and her reckless new partner is anything but trustworthy. Still, she has a job to do. There's a killer at large, and a pregnant woman has gone missing. Once Devlin and her partner get to work, they quickly unearth secrets involving Birmingham's most esteemed citizens. Each new layer of the investigation brings Devlin closer to the killer and the missing woman who starts looking more like a suspect than a victim. But just as answers come into view, the case twists, expands, and slithers into Devlin's personal life. There's a much more sinister game at work, one she doesn't even know she's playing, and she must unravel the truth and for all to stop the killer before she loses everything. Chapter 1, today, Saturday, June 16th, 7.15 a.m. Just tell me where she is and we can take this down and lodge. Carrie took a breath, let it out slowly. I'll lower my weapon. You have my word. All I want is your cooperation. Her palms were sweating, arms shaking from maintaining the firing stance for so long. She didn't trust this bastard, but she damn sure hadn't followed him here to do this. Now she had a situation. The lieutenant would say desperation had driven her over the edge and he wouldn't be wrong. Her new partner would shake his head and wonder how she ever dared to judge him. Carrie blinked. She'd gone too far. She knew this. Too late to change that now. Swallowing the lump of uncertainty rising in her throat, she stared at the man in her crosshairs. Way too late. He laughed. Blood trickled from his swollen, no doubt, broken nose. She'd punched him hard. As if to underscore the thought, her right hand throbbed mercilessly. Anger tightened her lips. Not hard enough or he wouldn't be so smug right now, the son of a bitch. You should know by now, Detective Devlin, that you can't touch me. I will ruin you, he warned, the words nasally sounding. He swiped at the blood splatter, staining his pale blue polo. Your career with the Birmingham Police Department is over. Like she needed anyone to point that out, a glaringly obvious detail. With every fiber of her being, she wanted to kill him. The urge simmered in the deepest part of her soul. She knew what this bastard had done. She had evidence, by God. Maybe not enough for a trial conviction, but it was something for now. That could wait. This was by far more important, more urgent. She was the one who laughed this time. Can't you tell by now I don't care? As long as I take you all the way down first, I can live with whatever comes comes second. He smiled at her, the expression inconjurant, with his bleeding and damaged face. But you do care about that sweet little daughter of yours, don't you? I would hate to see her have to pay for your mistakes, detective. Carrie flinched. A new rush of fury lashed through her, more at her reaction than, his th- than at his threat. Just fucking tell me what I need to know. She twitched the barrel of her Glock 40 cal. Or I swear to God, I will pull a bullet right between your eyes. He stared at her for one, two, three beats. Then he said, go ahead. Shoot me. Shit. Maybe he'd seen her arm shake or spotted that flinch. Either way, he'd called her bluff. No turning back now. Her hand tightened on the grip. Forefinger curled around the trigger. You think I won't? He lunged at her. She instinctively twisted to the right. His body crashed into her left shoulder, sending her off balance. She slammed backward onto the floor, the weight of his body landing on top of her force to the air from her lungs. Weapon? Adrenaline's roaring, she locked the fingers of her right hand tighter around the butt of the Glock. She still had her weapon, 
relief trickled through her. With every ounce of might she possessed, she punched with her left fist, aiming for the throat. He stretched his upper body to one side, ensuring the blow jammed impotently into his shoulder. She yanked her arm back, aimed again, he backhanded her. Blocking out the pain, she rammed her knee toward his groin. He dodged the move, grabbed at the clock with one hand and her hair with the other. No, no, no! She twisted her right arm, fought to wrench the barrel of the weapon from his desperate grasp. His grip tightened, his face distorted with rage. She bucked and rotated her body, used her free hand to clutch at his throat, his eyes, whatever she could reach. He slammed her head against the floor, again and again. The room spun. She felt her wrist crack from the pressure of him trying to rip the Glock from her grasp. She could not allow him to take it. Her head hit the floor again, harder this time. Her eyes rolled back. She blinked, shook herself. His weight ground into her waist. Another thwack of her head. The blast of a bullet discharging from her weapon exploded in the room. She gasped. Darkness clawed at her. She fought to stay conscious. Tried to rise up. Where was he? The room shifted out of focus, started to spin. She closed her eyes to slow the whirling sensation. The darkness swallowed her, dragging her down, down, down. There was sound. She stopped falling, fought, fought against the darkness still swaddling her. The sound came again, rattling, vibrating. There was pain. Carrie tried to open her eyes once more. More of that vibrating. Her eyes cracked open and pain exploded behind them. She squeezed them shut and groaned. That damn rattling started again, and this time she recognized it. It was her phone. She opened her eyes and turned her head, despite the pain, and stared at the black device lying on the wood floor. A moment was required before her brain got the message through to her arm that she had to reach for the phone in order to answer it. Her partner's face flashed on the screen. Falco, there was something. Shit! She sat up. The room spun, and her head exploded with more of that searing pain. When she dared to open her eyes again, she stared at the man slumped face down on the floor, one of his legs, one of her legs trapped beneath his thighs. Jesus Christ! She scrambled free of his weight. The room whirled again. She grabbed her head and closed her eyes until the spinning stopped and the pain leveled out. Another groan hissed past her lips. That damn vibration erupted once more. She couldn't deal with that right now. She forced her eyes open. Slowly, she crawled on all fours until she was within reach of him. She touched his neck, checked for a pulse. Nothing. He was dead. Fuck. Where was her weapon? She hoisted herself to her feet, staggered around the body, didn't see the damn thing. Shit, shit, shit. The Glock had to be under him. Using her right foot, she pushed, swaying drunkenly on her left until she rolled him onto his back. The hole in his upper chest and all the blood told her the bullet had likely gone in at an upward trajectory and pierced a major artery. He was dead. She'd killed him. Reaching down, she was relieved that her weapon lay just outside the widening ring of blood. She snatched it up and shoved it into her waistband. Her phone started rattling again. This time, she grabbed it and managed to hit the necessary button. Devlin, where the hell are you? Rather than wait for her answer, Luke Falco, her partner, said, They found something, Devlin, another body, possibly female. This case is busting wide open. You need to be here. You need to be here now. The case. 
For 10 days, the investigation into a double homicide had been leading them deeper and deeper into the past and giving them nothing but the occasional fragment of information. Now, suddenly, the dozens of scattered pieces were coming together. She stared at the dead man on the floor. He was one of those pieces. A new rush of cold, hard reality gushed through her. Fuck. She touched the back of her head gingerly with her free hand. She didn't feel any blood, but it hurt like hell. She winced and drew her hand away. Focus. The case. Falco. God, this was a mess. Sorry, she swallowed back the rising panic. I got caught up in something. She closed her eyes to block the body from her field of vision. Text me the address. I'm on my way. Hurry, Devlin. I've got a feeling about this. Yeah, okay. I'll be there soon. She ended the call and shoved the phone into her back pocket. What the hell should she do? Call it in? If she did, a new kind of foreboding slunk around her chest. She held her aching head and fought the urge to cry. Too damn late for that. He was dead. Okay. Okay. She'd killed him. Regardless of whether she intended to do so, he was dead, and it was her bullet that had initiated the cause of death. She needed to think, to figure this out. She thought of her daughter. Oh, God. If Carrie went to jail, Tori, she banished the thought, studied herself. I can't do this right now. She had to go. Falco and the search team were already at the scene. She was supposed to be there. She could deal with this later, claim temporary insanity for leaving the scene. She stared at her hands and checked her clothes to ensure there was no blood on her. Clean. After turning too quickly, she stumbled and almost fell, rushing to the door. She closed the door behind her and moved a little more slowly across the porch and down the steps, her hands searching her pockets for her keys. If she had to go back in there. She climbed into her Wagner and thanked God when the keys were in the ignition. Summoning every ounce of resolve she possessed, she started the engine and shifted in to drive, only then remembering to fasten her seatbelt. Considering the way her head throbbed and the need to vomit along with the loopy feeling, she probably had a concussion, but that was another of those situations she couldn't do anything about at the moment. She held on to the steering wheel with both hands and drew in a deep breath, then another. She could straighten this out later. It was an accident. The words rang hollowly in the air around her. He'd attacked her. The weapon had discharged. Accidental shooting. Maybe maybe even self-defense. He had threatened her and her daughter. What the hell has she been thinking confronting him in the first place? Has she really expected the bastard to come clean with her? She was a better cop than this. Damn it. She was losing it. Or maybe she'd already lost it. A man was dead. Possibly an innocent man. No way. Hell no. She refused to go that far. He was guilty of at least covering up numerous crimes, possibly even murder. Her lips tightened. Oh, yes. Every instinct she had honed over the years as a detective warned that he was the one. Curve! Her breath stalled in her lungs. She shoved her foot down on the brake. Too late. The car spun, sliding sideways. She missed the curve. The ditch rose up to meet her.
So I ended up giving this book five stars. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I wrote a pretty long blog post on my writefromkaren.com blog. That's write, W-R-I-T-E, from Karen.com. I posted it on January 23rd, Saturday. And I'll just read it because it's just easier for me to read my thoughts than to try to <laughs> try to talk my thoughts out. If I can talk, I don't know, I'm having a hard time talking today. I don't know what my problem is. Okay, so here's the review I posted here on my blog and on Goodreads, by the way. The title says it all. I remember thinking this very thing when I was reading it. Wow, I have no idea who the murderer is. All of the characters are shady and hiding a secret. It really could be anyone. So Carrie, our main protagonist, is a detective who's married to her job. This obsession forced her self-centered husband away and he had an affair. Carrie found out about it and divorced him. Carrie has a 13-year-old daughter who is bitter about the divorce and seeks her father's love and attention. Only dad is busy with his new family to pay her much attention. As a result, the daughter lashes out and causes Carrie grief and anxiety, which only adds to her difficult job. I was glad the author didn't spend much time on this dynamic. I feel like she spent just enough time to give the reader a glimpse into her history, thereby giving the reader a chance to get to know Carrie outside her job. It served to show the reader that Carrie was human after all and that she has to do what so many of us do on a daily basis, deal with home struggles while maintaining our professional lives as well. Falco, her new partner, is a mystery. He's portrayed as a bad boy who was undercover for a while, and his experiences while he was undercover somewhat broke him. Carrie is saddled with him, and she's not sure how to feel about him. She certainly doesn't trust him. I like the dynamic between Carrie and Falco. Sparks didn't immediately fly. Instead, they seem to be slowly building a relationship, a professional relationship, Though by the end of the book, Carrie is starting to trust him and she's allowing a few of her defenses down so that it's implied that something more for the two of them could potentially be down the road. I do wish Webb had written Falco a bit more brash. I like the mysterious aspect of him, but he's almost too nice too soon, though it was nice to see her partnered with someone who had her back. I wish she had been a bit more rough around the edges, thereby giving Carrie an opportunity to smooth those edges. I really enjoyed the mysterious bitchy cross character. I hope she makes more appearances in future stories. I like that Falco uses her as a resource to help them solve the mysteries because there is more than one, more on that later, and how he keeps saying he owes her. I would like to see Cross cash in those favors in future stories, perhaps placing Falco in a difficult moral dilemma later. I would actually like to see a story about Cross. Why is she the way she is? What sort of experiences made her into this character that we see now? Miss Webb, if you're reading this, smile. And speaking of characters, there were a lot of characters in this story. Almost too many, and I confess, I got lost a few times. I had to pause and think, now, who is this again? However, I do feel like each character played a role, and I didn't feel like Webb was inserting characters willy-nilly just to muddy the waters. Though I was frustrated by the sheer amount of characters, I will say that Webb did a nice job of interweaving all of these characters later in the story, and by the end, their functions were all justified and I could forgive that aspect of the story. She introduced a lot of characters because there were several threads to this story. The main murder of Abbott and his mother-in-law, Sela's past, 
discovering Sela had a sister and wondering what happened to her sister. Sela's mother's mysterious illness, Amelia's disappearance, Carrie's best friend's affair, and Carrie's sister's husband's secrets. All of these seemingly unconnected issues were actually all connected in various ways, and I appreciated the way Webb kept me guessing and masterfully made all of these mysteries come together in the end. That's mainly the reason I bumped my rating from four stars to five stars because I could appreciate the complexity of the story and I admired the way she brought all of these storylines together in the end. Bravo. That couldn't have been easy to do. I also like the way Webb put Sela's perspective into this story as well. You know she's heavily involved in the murder of her husband and mother, but you're just not sure what role she played in the murders. I thought that added a richness to the story and definitely gave the reader a peek at Sela's motiva- motivation behind the events. Sela ends up being a master manipulator and very clever, and I would like to see Carrie cross paths with Sela again in future stories. Perhaps Sela becomes a master criminal, as predicted by her college professor. Cough, hint, cough. The plot moved forward slowly, and I was as frustrated by Carrie's lack of progress as she was. However, with that said, I also appreciated the fact that every time Carrie made progress with the mystery, it only served to raise more questions. It was a frustrating process, but also pigged, piqued my, my interest. I confess I had no idea who the murderer was, and by the time it was revealed, it made sense on a level that I didn't see coming. Again, bravo. As the mystery is slowly solved, the answers become more personal for Carrie. Quite a few characters close to Carrie are actually heavily involved in the mystery, and I appreciated that personal aspect. It made solving the mystery that much more important for Carrie and the reader. I felt invested in Carrie's journey. The ending was very satisfying and the key characters deserved what they got. Let's address a few one-star comments on Goodreads. Abandoned. First, the narration of the audiobook was awful. Whiny, everyone sounds the same and she sounds like a whiny teenager. Then the story, bunch of rich entitled a-holes for the most part, the lead character who is undecided about most everything in her life, how could she get to be a lead detective, and most everyone else unlikable. I tried for nine chapters and then sent the book back for refund. Not recommended for anyone. My response. This is why I don't listen to audiobooks. First of all, I get too distracted and lose my place whenever I listen to a book. I want to give the book my full attention, and when I'm doing something else while listening to a book, I can't, and that frustrates me. Kudos to those of you that can do that. I can't, apparently. Secondly, I don't want whomever is reading the book to sway my opinion as this commenter states. She couldn't get past the voice of the narrator, and that automatically puts the story in a negative category for her, which is unfair to the story. She mentions she can't get past the rich a-holes in the story. Fine, to to each his own. But that's precisely why I liked the story, because rich, powerful people get away with crap the rest of us poor saps would never get away with. Unfortunately, these types of people exist today, politicians, and it's so satisfying when these rich a-holes get what they deserve. Unfortunately, these types of characters do exist. Why exclude them from stories? I will say I do agree with the commenter on how Carrie seems undecided about most everything in her life. I got that vibe too, and I too wondered how she got a reputation for being 
such an outstanding detective when it seemed she was anything but confident most of the time. The other one-star reviews basically complained of the story being too slow, and I can't say I disagree with those observations. But overall, I really liked how Webb starts with one mystery, and by the end of the book, Carrie and Falco end up solving a 15-year-old mystery, as well as bringing rich, powerful a-holes to justice. So yes, I would recommend this book. Um, I would caution you, though, it is a bit slow. It is sometimes frustrating, but if you get past that, the the middle and the end really make up for it and it starts picking up speed. And all of the seemingly unrelated incidents all come together and form a very nice, neat, tidy little ending. And I really appreciated how Webb, uh, Webb's I like the way she wrote. I really appreciated the fact that she kept everything straight. And because I mean, this was a pretty hefty story. There was a lot of different threads in this story. And it was kind of hard to keep up with. But I could see why she had to do it just because of how it all ended. And it was really interesting because you had so many different things happening at once. And um, a lot of characters actually died, which is another kind of an unusual Uh, approach to these types of stories. So if you're looking for a challenging read, and something that is will challenge you honestly, as a reader, then I think that this would be a good book to do. And I'm looking forward to her next story, which I believe comes out in June. The next book I'm reading is an advanced reading copy or an arc from NetGalley. And um, I don't want to tell you the title yet, because I want to keep something a surprise for next time. But I'm looking forward to reading it. And um, I really do like doing the book reviews. And surprisingly, I get a lot of views on my book reviews, which I don't know, I just, I guess I just assumed that I people weren't really interested in what I thought. And uh, I just write them because I think it's kind of fun to write them and remember some of the things that I liked or disliked about the book. And I, and I feel like it helps me grow as a writer as well to analyze the ins and outs, not only of the writing, but just the story structure and the story itself. And I feel like I learn something every single time I read uh, someone else's work. So anyway, um, I hope you guys like them as well. And I hope that I'm giving you something new to look into and possibly read and, and, you know, well, just have some fun because reading should be fun, right? Unless you're a straight white male and then sorry. I have just a few unusual story ideas for you today and some prompts as well. I've really been big into prompts lately. I've been searching a lot um, just for story ideas. I'm having a little bit of a writer's block. I'm not going to lie. I haven't written anything creatively since NaNoWriMo, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, I have a few stories percolating, but I haven't actually written anything yet. And I, I hate when I get like this, I hate to call it writer's block. But I just, for whatever reason, I just can't make myself write these stories. I don't know why I need to break that mold. I don't know if I need to start with something small, like flash fiction or something to just, you know, break the ice. But I need to do something because I'm getting more and more frustrated with myself the longer it goes with me 
not writing anything like any fiction or anything. But anyway, um, airplane wheel crashes down in Chicago neighborhood. Apparently a small plane coming into Chicago O'Hare lost a wheel and the wheel fell in, in the front yard of someone's house. It made quite a racket and a lot of people came out to see what was happening. But um, luckily no one was hurt. It doesn't sound like it hit any houses or, or, or there were no reports of significant property damage. So thank goodness for that. But that might be some kind of fun little mystery is, you know, it could even be a mystery, a start of a story. You know, someone comes out and they find a wheel or a part of a plane or something in their front yard. And they're trying to figure out, you know, where is the plane? What happened? Who's on the plane? That kind of thing. So that that was kind of an interesting little story. Here's another one. It could be just an interesting aspect of a story, not necessarily a story itself, though, I guess, you know, I guess it could be the way if you wanted to structure it that way. But inventor unveils airbag jeans to protect motorcyclists in crashes. A designer of safety equipment for motorcyclists unveiled his latest invention, jeans fitted with airbags to prevent leg injuries and crashes. This is actually a pretty good idea. Um, You know, Kevin, my husband, was in a motorcycle accident 10 years ago and almost 11 years ago. And uh, he crushed his pelvis. And if luckily, if he hadn't had a helmet on, he probably wouldn't have much of a face today because he did kind of land face down. Um, but, you know, motorcyclists are very vulnerable. And so I thought this was an interesting story. And I hope it actually ends up being something that could be beneficial to the motorcyclist out there. But, you know, that could be kind of an interesting story, maybe a sci-fi story or, you know, like some inventor coming out with some new invention and it takes off and or, you know, or not. (laughs) But that was kind of an interesting invention, if you will. Um, Here's one ultrasound photo left in leased car returned to return to parents two years later. That's kind of interesting. An Illinois couple said what initially seemed to be junk mail from a local car dealership turned out to be the first ultrasound images of their daughter, which they lost two years earlier. Um, Elise Peterson Deerfield said she received a piece of mail last week from a local dealership, Toyota on Edens, and she initially thought it was junk, but inside were some ultrasound photos and a handwritten note from Michael Townsend, the general manager. Said Mr. and Mrs. Peterson, I believe the enclosed image Imaging is very significant to you. It may have come from a vehicle returned. It's from some time ago. There was the images were found in the glove compartment of a vehicle at the dealership. He said he ran the names of the images through the dealership's database and discovered a couple by that name had previously leased the vehicle. So that's pretty fun. Um, I mean, that would be kind of kind of cool to discover some photos in a rental. And you spend the story trying to track down the owner of the vehicle or the owner of the photographs and perhaps the photographs or something as simple as an ultrasound or could be something nefarious, you know, something mysterious or disturbing or something like that. Or it could be the start of a serial killer or who knows, you know, it could be the start of an interesting story. I can't tell if this next story is a joke or if it's real. (laughs) says Oklahoma bill would establish a Bigfoot hunting season. An Oklahoma state representative introduced a bill that would establish a hunting season for one of the state's most infamous species of alleged native wildlife, Bigfoot. 
The mythical ape has been the subject of numerous sightings in southern Oklahoma for years, and the region hosts annual Bigfoot Festival for fans. <laughs> that would be kind of fun, a fun story to write. I mean, who knows? Maybe Bigfoot is real. Maybe someone will actually find him one of these days. Wouldn't that be something? Anyway, that could be kind of a fun little sci-fi story or mystery or just some lighthearted fun you know maybe some person's dressing up as Bigfoot and he's being hunted or you know it could be nefarious it could be some criminal or something that's dressing up as Bigfoot to, Bigfoot to keep people away or you know who knows it this just use your imagination go wild here's some uh, interesting prompts writing prompts that I came across that have been kind of percolating um in the horror genre a girl goes missing in the woods and her parents find only a decrepit and scary doll left behind. They soon learn that the doll is actually their daughter and she's alive. Aha. I think that sounds like a pretty fun little story. I don't have a lot of experience with horror, though I do think uh, writing like twisted, off the off kilter kind of stories are fun. Um, I don't know that my brain really works like that, though, but I'm challenging myself to write maybe a few horror stories just to, I don't know, just to challenge my my creative muse, coax her out of hiding, if you will, because I feel like she is hiding right now. Um, here is a romance writing prompt. Um, billionaire is the category, which hmm, I have mixed feelings about this about this category of romance. It just seems so contrived and I don't know, cheesy in a lot of ways, because really, what are the odds of anybody meeting a million, a billionaire, and then that billionaire falling madly in love with you? You know, I just I don't know, it just seems so far fetched and crazy. But you know what, it's fiction. Let's have some fun with it. So here's a billionaire romance writing prompt. Your writing career has been stagnant since you moved to the city. So when your editor comes to you with a project unlike any other, you hope this will be your big break. The assignment? An expose on a bachelor billionaire tycoon that everyone in the city is talking about. The goal is to uncover something unseemly about his background and ruin his reputation. You feel bad about it, but if this is the price for success, you decide that you are willing to pay it. Besides, the public deserves the truth, right? And when you pose as a high-end real estate agent and manage to get some time with him, you find that he's smart, charming, and considerate. He's nothing like you expected. The more time you spend with him, the more your feelings grow until you realize you're unable to complete your assignment. But if he ever found out about your true background, your budding relationship would be doomed. So that's a story idea for you in the romance genre. And let's see, let's do something in mystery. Uh, let's see here. Murder mystery prompts. Surprise! Guests at a surprise party that have arriving at the party as planned. The ashes of the birthday boy are delivered with a note from his killer. Ooh, that sounds like a really interesting, promising prompt. So... There are some prompt ideas for you and your creative muse. I hope that helped.
All right. That's going to wrap up this week. Um, As always, thank you so much for listening. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast stations. Um, I also put it on my blog, writefromkaren.com, W-R-I-T-E from Karen.com. I am working on a reading vlog and I would like to do more vlogging as well. So if you're interested in seeing those videos, visit my blog for more information. And with that, I'm going to leave you. So I hope you have an excellent week. Um, Nothing special has been going on in my personal life. It's just been work as usual. I've been working my butt off, but when do I not? (laughs) And um, if you would like to know more about what I do as far as a medical assistant, I did actually post a vlog just recently on my blog and I took you on a tour of my office for those of you interested in knowing about my real life outside this podcast. You're welcome to visit and come on a tour with me. Otherwise, I'm going to end it. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate your time. Time is valuable. So I'm very humbled to know that you spent this time listening to me rattle on. And as always, be alert, not anxious. Have an excellent week. And I will see you, talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.